What's up, folks? This is Tony Brewer. You're listening to, or watching as the case may be, Cogitations. Cogitations is the podcast where we think about things, we contemplate them, we turn them over in our minds, and then we discuss them. Daniel chapter 7, verse 28, Daniel writes, Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. We're not going to keep the matter in our heart. We're going to talk about it. Today, we're going to talk about having faith in the face of doubt. And these kind of topics seem to resonate with people. I suppose it's a it's it's endemic to the human condition to have doubts. And I think doubting has been stigmatized. I mean, after all, look at even a character in the Bible as faithful as Thomas who at the feet of Jesus bowed and said, my Lord, my God. And Jesus actually told him, don't be faithless. The implication, whenever, whenever, he, was, whenever he was doubting, he was still in the good graces of Jesus, and he just wanted proof. And Jesus said, here's the proof. Now that you have the proof, you don't have to be faithless. So the idea is if you just simply need some reaffirmation or some reassurances or some affirmations, that doesn't make you faithless. It just makes you like Thomas. Or that doesn't make you out of God's good graces. I need to chew on that some now that I've, now that I've said it out loud. That's why we have these Cogitations podcast. I don't think of Th- Thomas as doubting Thomas. I think of Thomas as faithful Thomas. When does one lose their faith? I don't think it's at doubting because the very name of Israel, we're the children of Israel, spiritual Israel, that means those who struggle with God in essence. So if I'm struggling, that means I might have some doubt. I don't know. I think there's so many passages of scripture in the Bible that assure us that we can be right in the eyes of God even when we're struggling, even when we have doubts. I think of Elisha in the cave after the defeating of the 400 prophets of Baal. Man, he he had a pity party. He was just like, look, I don't want to mess with this. There's, I, I'm alone and left in Israel who are faithful, and this woman seeks my life. And the Lord spoke to him in a small, in a still small voice and said, look, you're not the only one. But here's some food, here's some water, take you a little bit of time, I've got some work for you to do. So he gave him some space to gather himself and said, go, go do the job. But I don't think Elisha ever come out of God's good graces. Just like you and I, if we have doubts, I don't think we come out of God's good graces. And I think maybe this lesson, lesson that we can pull from the account of Naaman the leper, maybe that'll help us. Maybe that'll help us. Maybe that'll help me flesh this out in my mind. Anyway, good morning, Michael. It's good to see you. And uh, for those of you that are just tuning in, uh, it just blows my mind. We got eight people watching on YouTube. If you're not subscribed, be sure and subscribe on the YouTube and uh, that'll help us push, uh, hit the notification bell, be the algorithm for us. And if you're watching anywhere else, especially if you're watching on uh, X or t- also or formerly known as Twitter. I see I've got follow us on X, AKA Twitter, but it's not AKA Twitter. It's FKA formerly known as Twitter. 
Anyway, Christianity Now at 1 Chronicles 1232. The reason I chose 1 Chronicles 1232 is because that is the verse that me and Aaron pulled our inspiration from for the Christianity Now brand. We want to be sons of Issachar who have understanding of the times. We want to have our finger on the pulse of the contemporary issues that, that, that the Lord's church is facing, that individuals in the Lord's church is facing, and we want to help you with that. And that's why I think this subject of how do Christians function in the face of doubt, it resonates with so many people. Hello, Angie B. Good morning from Texas. Uh, good to see everybody. All right, here's, here's the thing. Let me just get, well, wait a second. We got to hear a word from our sponsor before we get into the meat of our podcast. And y'all all know who it is. Lindsay, Lindsay Faye Dotson at gmail.com. Listen, are you part of a congregation, a church congregation, or any other organization that's seeking effective ways to spread the word about your event? Well, look no further. Lindsay Dotson specializes in designing modern advertisements for churches and other organizations, whether it's flyers, postcards, or social media graphics. Lindsay has got you covered. Reach out through a private message on Facebook or send an email to, and this is the preferred method. LindsayFayDotson at gmail.com for more details. Don't miss this opportunity to make your message resonate both far and wide. Contact LindsayFayDotson at gmail.com today. And her information is in the bottom left on the screen. I'll leave that up a moment. And then I'll put up the tip jar because, hey, I'm, I've been asked. So, and and I'm, I, I, I feel so weird about that. Like, I know a labor's worthy of his hire, and I know you shouldn't muzzle the ox because it treads out the grain, but I feel so weird. Anyway, I shouldn't draw that much attention to it if I feel weird about it, so I'm going to hush up. Anyway, in a minute, when the tip jars up, you'll know why. It's because I've been asked to do it. All right. Naaman, a commander in the army of the king of Syria, is a figure who's in the Bible whose story offers valuable lessons. His account's found in the book of 2 Kings chapter 5. So we have humility before God's instructions. So we're going to do this overview, and then towards once we get through this overview, we're going to hone in with surgical precision about faith in the face of doubt and bring this into a 21st century application for Christians. Incidentally, um, back whenever I was first preaching, before I developed my kind of disdain for the quote-unquote five steps, all of the so-called five steps are buried in the account of Naaman. Think about it. He had to hear the good news about the man of God, just like we have to hear the good news about the man of God, Jesus. In other words, he had to hear the good news. There's a place where you can go to get salvation. He had to believe to the point where he acted on it, he had to change his mind about where he currently was. I mean, he was he was in Syria and he was a leper. Then he uh, had to confess. You know what? I the man of God. I, I believe that the man of God is who the man of God says he is, and I'm going to do what he says. And he had to obey. He had to be baptized. I mean, that's what that is. It's a baptism. He went down into the water and come up clean. He just had to do it seven times instead of once. But if you um, if you don't overly focus on those five steps and make it just sound like a man-made checklist, that's a pretty good lesson to preach. 
And uh, it's it's a different way to kind of assimilate that that way of thinking that listen, in order to be a Christian, in order to in 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 order to be right in the eyes of God in any dispensation of time, even in the microcosm of getting healing from God in a miraculous way in the long ago under the old covenant, you still had to hear about it, you had to believe it, you had to change your mind about your current condition, you had to confess that you know you had to affirm that this this is the right way to go that's confession and then you had to do whatever the do whatever the man of god told you was god's will that's that's pretty straightforward to me and it's not anything at all like teaching a work salvation anyway all right so let's let's look at these lessons i think i've got yeah five of them uh humility before god's instructions so Naaman, though he was, though, though he were a respected military leader, he suffered from leprosy. When he sought a cure, the prophet Elisha instructed him to dip seven times in the Jordan River. And I put the prophet Elisha. The prophet Elisha did, I think. We'll read the text. But I mean, the, the man of God, the servant of the man of God, came out and told him what to do. But anyway. Uh, I, I probably would reword that if I were going to finish it out for an article or something, which you're probably going to get this in the form of an article later on. Anyway, um, Elisha instructed him to dip seven times in the Jordan River. Now, initially, Naaman resisted, expecting an elaborate ritual. Remember the the famous phrase, behold, I thought, and we'll look at that. Anyway, he humbled himself, however. He followed the simple command and was healed. This underscores the importance of humility in following God's instructions, even when they seem simple or unconventional. You see, Naaman, he, he trusted that, that God could heal him. I mean, he made the trip from Syria to, to, to where the man of God was. Like, that was a long trip, and it wasn't easy to do. However, he just didn't like what the man of God told him to do. So lesson number two, uh, healing power. Naaman's healing highlights God's miraculous power of the day. Despite his status and accomplishments, Naaman's cure came solely through faith and obedience to God's command. This emphasizes the importance of acknowledging God's authority and recognizing that healing and deliverance spiritually come from God alone. The way you get spiritual healing for the leprosy of your soul is the same way Naaman got physical healing for the leprosy of his body. You had to, through faith and obedience, adhere to God's command. You didn't, Naaman for one minute did not earn his salvation, his healing just like you and I not for one minute are able to earn our salvation, our spiritual healing. Lesson number three, you got faith in action. Well, Naaman's journey involved faith in action. And I put forth to you that even though that I'm, I'm writing this down and this is my stream of consciousness, I'm using the word faith accommodatively here because you know how I define faith. Faith is action you take based on what you believe. Faith in action is actually a redundancy as I define the term most of the time, but I'm using the term accommodatively. 
So Naaman's journey involved faith in action. His willingness to act upon Elisha's directive demonstrated his trust in God. Remember James, some of you folks say that you have faith, but you don't have any works. I don't ever have to tell you I have faith. You'll know I have faith by my works. How do you know that Naaman trusted in God because he took that action? He just didn't like what God told him to do, and he had to have a little bit extra convincing. So this serves as a reminder that faith is not merely a positive or a passive belief, but it requires corresponding actions. Trusting God often often involves stepping out in faith, even when the path seems unconventional. Soon ergo, Michael, you'll have to. I know what soon ergo means. Is it's one working. Um. I, I'm, I'm thinking that's probably what you mean whenever I was saying of that, uh, that it's, it's the healing comes, the spiritual healing comes from the working of God. And it's, although it's not irrespective of the working of man, if man doesn't work, God is, we're, we're not going to be able to take advantage of what God has already done. The work that a, a lot of, a lot of denominations, they talk about, well, you need to Trust in the finished work of the cross. Okay, I 100% agree that soon. Oh, I'm see, Michael, that's why I'm glad I asked. I messed that up. Soon is not singular. Soon is together. The work, the, the episunagoge, soon ago, epi, uh, soon. Epi means, uh, well, I'm nerding out. I'm going to back off of that. Yes, soon is, is the is the coming together, like synagogue. All right. Anyway, sunago, the the coming together. Soon ergo is working together. Good stuff. Yes. Um, but I'll finish my thought there because a lot of people think it's 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 one person working that is only God working in salvation. And there's a sense, I believe, in, with that, in which that is true. I mean, I did not participate in the salvation of mankind. In other words, I didn't. I wasn't up there with, with my Savior on the cross. Uh, Jesus' blood wasn't mixed with my blood in order to save anybody. Uh, what's up, Diana Harden? It's good to see you. So, um, sorry, my brain's buffering. The working together. Some people say, well, let's just fin- trust in the finished work of the cross. I'm like, okay, I do trust in the finished work of the cross. Therefore, I'm going to take a beat from, from Naaman. And I'm going to do what the man who died on the cross told me to do. Because if I don't do what the man on the cross told me to do, I don't get what the man on the cross did for me. Boy, we ought to clip that. That'd be a good little clip. Uh, I'm proud of myself. I, if 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 I'm going to trust in the finished work of the cross, in that I'm going to do what the man on the cross finished on my behalf. But if I don't do, if I don't do what the man on the cross commanded me to do, then I won't be able to partake in what the man on the cross finished on my behalf. I may need to chew on that and flesh it out some. Uh, in fact, let me, let me get this, um, let me put our tip jar up again, because I've been asked. 
So if you want to send us a monetary donation, you can do so through nearchurches at gmail.com or you can become a patron. But right here, right here, Substack. If you want to support us monetarily, the best way to do it where you get the most bang for your buck is do a paid subscription on Substack for $5 a month. Romans 6, 16, do you not know that unto whom you, unto whom you choose to obey his servants you are? And I love verses 17 and 18, but God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. That's a wonderful passage of scripture, and it aptly illustrates what I'm so ineloquently trying to say. Trust in the finished work of the cross. Well, the man that died on the cross for us told us to do X, Y, Z. Why would we not just do X, Y, Z and be clean? That is the lesson from Naaman's faith in action. Trusting in God often involves stepping out in faith, even when the path seems unconventional. Lesson number four. Thank you so much, Michael. Uh, lesson number four. God's sovereignty over the nations. Now think about this one. I love this one. The account of Naaman also highlights God's sovereignty over the nations. Despite Naaman being a commander in the Syrian army, God used him to reveal his power. This reinforces the idea that God's plans extend beyond individual nations and he can work through people from various backgrounds to accomplish his purpose or purpose is. How do you think that would apply to us today in the 21st century? What's going on in the world now where people are saying, well, God's chosen people is Israel and all this, that, and the other. And we're making, we're making, uh, in, in the United States of America, at least they make, uh, foreign relations. They make, uh, world politic decision based on this idea that God, that Israel is still God's chosen people. I'll get it out in a minute. I'm having trouble Englishing today, but anyway, God, God is sovereign over all the nations. And once Israel, I remember the destruction of Jerusalem happened, God judged Israel and now, according to Romans 11 that we studied uh, sometime last week, this this branch from this wild olive tree is grafted in. And I think it's 11.23, 11.22. Just go read the book of Romans chapter 11. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of the Lord on them that fell severity. Well, who was the ones that fell? It was the Israelites, the children of Israel. But that's okay, God's sovereign over the nations. And he had a plan anyway, the seed promise, that everybody who obeyed the gospel, who put on Christ Jesus, were children of God by faith in Christ Jesus and heirs according to the promise of Abraham. There is therefore now no bond nor free, no Jew nor Gentile, no man nor woman, no national affiliation. It's just everybody who obeys the gospel is a child of God through faith in Christ Jesus and heirs according to the promise of Abraham. Why? Why was able to, why was God able to do that? Because he's sovereign over the nations. And while that's not the main lesson that we should take from Naaman's account, it certainly is in there. Hello, Connie Barden. Good morning to you. I'm having a hard time. I feel like that sounded like a robot. 
Hello, Connie Barton. Good morning to you. Good morning, fellow human. All right. Anyway. Oh, get it together, Tony. Lesson number five. Upon his healing, this is gratitude and worship. Upon his healing, Naaman expresses gratitude and declared his intention to worship the God of Israel. This underscores the importance of gratitude and acknowledging God's roles in our lives. Naaman's transformation from a foreign military leader to a worshiper of the true God illustrates God's ability to bring people from different backgrounds into his fold. And before we go to 2 Kings chapter 5, I want to turn your attention to chapter 1, verse 10 of the book of Ephesians. I absolutely love this. That in the dispensation of time, the fullness of time, he, <clears throat> he might gather together in one all things in Christ. I love that. Both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Folks, if Naaman died in faith, then Naaman is a member of the church that Jesus built, the church about which he spake, when he said, upon this rock I will build my church. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that something to think about, the powerful blood of Jesus Christ that is able to reconcile different people from different classes and nations across the centuries. All you have to do is be faithful to God. You have to trust in God and do what he says and live a life commensurate with God's will. And you will have died in faith, even outside of the covenant of Jesus Christ in the older dispensations of time. I think about all of the people that are mentioned in faith's Hall of Fame, Hebrews chapter 11. Every one of them are our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. They're members of the church of Christ. The church, the called out body of people of, that's possessive, Christ, the Messiah. So the called out body of people that are owned or possessed of Jesus there are brothers and sisters. It's amazing. Now, now let's in the in the in the time remaining, let's talk about faith in the faith of faith in the face of doubt. Maybe uh, say that five times fast. All right, so let's go to Second Kings, and we're going to read the account of Naaman the leper. So I'm just going to read it, and then I'm going to make this point from this question that was asked during Sunday school about whether or not Naaman went down into the river doubting. Man, that's such a good question. And while I don't think I gave a definitive answer, because I don't think we can know what Naaman believed and didn't believe or where he was strong and weak, I think we can know enough from what the text tells us that we can garner a very, very, very valuable lesson for us today. Now let's just read now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. 
And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to go, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed and took it with him, ten talents of silver, six thousand pieces of gold, and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman, my servant, to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass when the king of Israel read the letter that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. <laughs> Naaman had a... Naaman had more faith in God than the king. All right. Verse 8. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, This is why I think that the actual message came from Elisha, because the, the, the person that was sent to Naaman was a messenger. In other words, messengers deliver messages that they did not originate themselves. So anyway, and Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, as thou shalt, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth, and went away, and said, Behold, I thought. Now there's his first problem. He's thinking too much. He will sure, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me, and stand, and call on the name of his Lord and his God, and strike his hand over the place, and recover the leper. Are not the Abana and the rivers of far part or far part of the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servant came near and spake to him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather when he saith unto thee, Wash and be clean? Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him, and said, Behold, now that there is no God, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. But he said, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offerings nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth in the house of Remen to worship there, and he and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself unto the house of Remen. When I bow down myself in the house of Remen, the Lord pardon thy service, servant in this one thing. 
And he said, go in peace and depart from him. And so he departed from him a little way. All right, folks, this is an amazing account. Now think about this. Naaman trusted in God. He went from Syria to Israel. He was only angry at what the man of God told him to do. Well, he was he, not the man of God. He, he was angry that the man of God first sent out a messenger. It's almost as if, and I get this from the reading. I understand this is conjecture, and this is me reading just a little bit into the text. He was arrogant, and he felt like he was. He he, he felt like he was disrespected. Like, do you not know who I am? I'm a mighty man of valor. I'm a mighty big fish. You need to come out and take care of me. No, I don't. I wouldn't even have to. I wouldn't even have to say that's that's the beautiful thing about God's power. Naaman would not have had to have gone to the man of God. Naaman would not have had to have done anything if God so chose. God could have healed Naaman regardless. And I, I think I think it has to do with stewardship. There's a lesson about stewardship, an illustration. You know, should we give our money to God? Uh, we're, we're called to be cheerful givers. Well, why? Does God need our money? Well, no, God doesn't need our money. And I promise I'm going to bring, just let me cook here a minute. I'm going to bring this point home. So when I look at the man of God, or excuse me, when I look at Naaman, he needed to do everything he did for him. God did not need him to do it. Just like whenever we give of our means to God, when we give a portion of that which, with which we've been blessed and we give it back to God, God doesn't need that from us. We need to give it to him. It is the same as a mother telling her three-year-old child, we're going to bake cookies today and you're going to help. And the little three-year-old child is so excited. Now, have you ever seen a three-year-old child try to bake cookies? Have you ever tried to do anything with a three-year-old child? It is immensely easier without their help. I would argue that the help of a three-year-old child is actually a hindrance to whatever you're trying to do, but that's okay. You as a parent need to train that child. You see, the mother doesn't need the help of the three-year-old child to bake the cookies, but the three-year-old child needs to help the mother bake the cookies because of all the lessons that it teaches. Uh, I wish I could take credit for that illustration, Diana Harden. The first time I heard it was from Kyle Butt and a lecture he did. And I can't even remember where I was now. Anyway, a lecture he did about stewardship. Kyle Butt absolutely loves the topic of stewardship. And he, he said anywhere, he, anytime he's asked to go preach somewhere where he isn't assigned a topic, he preaches about stewardship. So, with us, well, forget us for a moment, with Naaman. God, in order to heal Naaman, did not need Naaman to do one form thing. God was well able to do anything at any time at any place. 
God is the Almighty. God said, let there be light, and there was light. You get me? But it was Naaman that needed to go from Syria to the man of God. It was Naaman that needed to be put out. Naaman needed to have some, pardon the turn of phrase, skin in the game. So he went. And what what happened? I think it helped Naaman. It helped him learn humility. Now, notice, Naaman is not a, a, a nefarious individual. Think about a little Jewish maiden, potentially as young as 12 years old. He listened to her. He validated her enough that he said, well, I'm going to go to see this man of God. And then when he was in a rage, the Bible says, when he was wroth and he went away in a rage because he felt, is it it snided the word? Snide is not the right word. Snubbed. When he felt snubbed, when he felt insulted, when when he felt like he didn't receive the pomp and circumstance due his position, he still listened to one of his servants. So Naaman was the kind of person that kept people around him that would be real with him. And maybe, just maybe, this event humbled him enough to be like, you know what? I was told to dip seven times in the Jordan. I think I'm going to go dip seven times in the Jordan. Because his servant said, if the man of God would have told you to do some great thing, and I think about climbing Mount Everest. You know, I think there's been, never mind. I was going to say, I almost spoke out of turn. I was going to say there's been more people to the, there's been, I think there's been more people in outer space than there's been on Mount Everest. I, I was, I almost took on too much territory. I was going to say there's been more people fly to the moon than has been on Mount Everest, but I, I'm going to retract that. I think it might be wrong. But you understand what I'm saying. Climbing Mount Everest is a huge deal. And I've watched documentaries and stuff like that that along the along the path up that you'll find people who have died and they just leave them there because that's their final resting place. It's easier to leave them there than it is to risk the life of, of rescuers to go get a dead body. But if, if Naaman, being a mighty man of valor, would have been told to do some great thing, he would have done it because that, that, would, have, that would have been commensurate according to his ego with his station in life. I think about what Saul told David. You need to go get me the ears of a hundred Philistines. Well, he did. Well, if God would have said, go get me the ears of a hundred Philistines, I think Naaman would have done it. Wouldn't have thought twice about it. But this shows Naaman exactly how powerless he is. You can't do anything of your own power to heal yourself. There's no amount of glory that you can take. It's not just that I'm going to have you go dunk and be clean. I'm going to have you dunk in the most least desirable river that there can be that you can dunk in. The Abana and the Farpar are objectively better rivers than the Jordan. The Jordan is rather dirty. And Naaman was insulted. However, he still, at least he was, at least he had a tender enough heart and an honest enough heart 
that when some wisdom came from someone he had surrounding him, he said, you know what, I'm just going to do what God said. Now the question is asked. That's right. For, for me, it parallels with what we are to do in obeying the gospel. It's so simple, yet people reject it. That's exactly right, Connie. And here, here's the thing. This is the question that was asked. Do you think Naaman doubted? So here's the thing. I don't know whether or not Naaman doubted that this process would make him clean. I know that Naaman didn't doubt that God was able to do it. So how do we have faith in the face of doubts? If you have a particular doubt about something, remember from whom the instructions come. I think this is a very good segue into uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is very interesting, and I, I just nerded out when I realized what Paul was trying to tell Timothy. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 12, I'll start reading. Sorry, I couldn't decide when to start reading. Um, Michael asked, do you think Naaman was humbled by his sickness? So, good question. I have no clue. It's very possible. Now, he, here's I, I've, I've done some pretty extensive research on Naaman's sickness. Here's the thing you got to remember about leprosy. Not all leprosy is created equal. Leprosy can can in 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 the context used, like leprosy in the Bible, can mean anything from a, a patch of eczema all the way up to full blown what we consider leprosy, where your fingers and toes and, and nose falls off. The the scholars that I've read all claim that Naaman probably just had leprosy as in a bad case of eczema because if he would have had full-blown leprosy he would have been ostracized stigmatized and he would not have been able to be in polite society uh he, he would have been outcast so i don't know judge for yourself whether or not these things be so but to, but to answer your question uh do you think that naaman was humbled by a sickness um, that's one of those things we can't get from the text. I think just from what we know of human of humanity, probably like that. That's a, that's a, it's a weird catch 22. That sickness may have done him some good. It may have kept him a little bit humble where he was willing to listen to people that were quote unquote lesser than him. Because if it hadn't have been his, for his willingness to listen to people who are lesser than him, he would never have come into contact with a man of God to hear the proper instructions in the first place, and he would not have ever obeyed the proper instructions because he would have never listened to his servant who said, if the man of God would have told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? But good question. Now, 2 Timothy, I'm going to start reading in chapter 12. How do you have faith in the face of doubts? Remember from whom the instructions come. Listen to this. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But 
So in the face of this, Timothy, continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and correction and instruction and righteousness. You know the rest. So why do I bring that into a conversation about Naaman? I don't know what Naaman believed when he went down into the water about going down into the water. I do know he trusted God. I do know that he believed enough. So he said, I've been given these instructions and I'm going to go do them because they came from God. They came from the man of God. And evidently that was enough. Why do I say that? Because he went seven times and he was clean. Because it worked. So many people, they get, I don't know how I like that nomenclature. Let me change. So many people have a salvation experience at a very early age, whenever they don't know a whole lot. And then as they grow, they learn so much. And then they look backwards and they say, wow, compared to what I know now, there's no way I could have known enough back then, so I'm not really saved. Remember, obeying from the heart, that form of doctrine. Obeying from the heart, Romans 6, 17, is obeying with a proper understanding and sincerity. Well, what if you have doubts in your old age? I tell you, there's one thing to assuage those doubts is just Go back through the process. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, I, I believe that the scriptures teach that the culmination of the, oh, this sounds pompous. I'm going to say it anyway. The culmination of the salvific journey, the process. Then, In other words, the point at which one is delivered out of the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear son. The point at which one is born again the point at which one is raised again to walk in newness of life, the point at which one is reborn is whenever one comes up out of the watery grave of baptism. I think the scriptures bear that out. So I'm going to use baptism as a metonymy for salvation for a moment. I'll give you an example of one person called me up on the church phone and they said, listen, I just want to let you know that I've always doubted my salvation. I think when I was baptized, I didn't know what I was doing. I said, well, talk to me. And she talked to me. And I said, look, I said, I, given your story, I can't, I can't tell you that your baptism was invalid. I said, you, everything sounds good to me. She said, well, that don't really help. I said, fair enough. I said, so there's one other option. Meet me at the church building and we'll baptize you. And one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to go down into the water a saint, a dry saint, and you're going to come up a wet saint, and we haven't we haven't lost anything, and you're just as saved now as you will be then, or you're going to go down into the water a sinner and you're going to come up a saint. 
in which case we will have gained everything and you're much better off then than you are now. So what do you want to do? She said, it'll take me about an hour, but I'll be to the church building. So we just baptized her into Christ. This is a real easy way to take care of that. But here's the thing. Just because you have a moment of doubt when you're 47, 57, 97, about your baptism and the sincerity of uh, and what you knew, that doesn't mean that every time you have a moment of doubt, you need to go get dunked. In fact, I think that can be detrimental to your salvation. I think it would be detrimental to your faith in God. Naaman, he trusted in God enough to do what God said and let the rest take care of itself. Trust in God, my my fellows, enough to just do the process and let the rest take care of itself. To me, that's that's casting your cares on God. I was I was bad, and again, I I don't I'm almost loath to use baptism as a metonym for salvation. But for the conversation, the scriptures teach, in my convicted opinion, that the moment that one is delivered from darkness to light is, is the baptism. Okay. So I'm going to use that as a metonym for the whole process. I was baptized at a very young age. And with the exception of two or three times, I've never doubted because I remember from whom the instructions come. So I remember the instructions come from God. So remember, uh, continue thou on the things that thou hast learned and been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Well, the things that I did when I was such a youngster, I learned them from God. I had an understanding. E- even though the even though I took the verse out of context a little bit, it was simple to me. If ever if everybody has sinned and comes short of the glory of God, and I'm everybody, then I've sinned. Well, what sin did I commit? Well, I remember thinking it was just a fun thing to do to lie to my parents and see how it affected them. Lying about a snake in the woodpile, they had to get up and they had to unstack the woodpile. They were looking for this snake. And I'm like, there there was not a snake. Never was a snake. Uh, And that was a lie. And I knew that I was accountable to somebody besides them at a very, very early age. And seeing is all of sin to come short of the glory of God, and I'm part of all, then I've sinned, and here's the sin that I've committed, and if I die right now, I'm going to go to hell for eternity. I've got to get this fixed. Paul was told to arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. I'm just going to do that. Folks, I think that's, that's, I mean, is that enough? I mean, I understood. I mean, I don't think I understood all the inner workings of the church and how Jesus was sitting on the throne of David, but I could articulate those, you know, like Jesus is the king. Jesus is sitting on the throne. Jesus is head of the church. Jesus only built one church. Like, I knew all that stuff. Is there ever a reason for me to doubt my salvation? I think not. But if I did, I just remember from where I heard the instructions. And I trust that the fact that I did what I was told to do by the creator of heaven and earth and all that in them is, 
then that helps me. And there's one more thing that can help you have faith in the face of doubt if this account of Naaman and the point that I just made doesn't help you. It's the first John chapter two principle. Little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Folks, if you ever feel like you're not saved, if you ever have doubts about your salvation, two things you can do. Remember from whom you heard the instructions. Remember who gave you the instructions. Put your trust in them. You did what you did what God told you to do. So then trust God to do what he says he'll do. And number two, go find some commandments to do. Oh, I don't feel saved, Tony. Go door knocking and invite people to church. You ain't got to try to get a Bible study with them. That may be more than you can handle. Just go door knocking and say, hey, I'm from the such and such Church of Christ, and I'd just like to let you know we'd love to have you on Sunday. Uh, you're not giving me any pamphlet? No. You're not trying to schedule a Bible? No, we're just inviting you. No pressure. Love to see you. Come, ch come check us out and go door knock. Or do what one of, the, one of those preachers of old did, said, listen, go bake a cake and carry it to a shut-in, and <laughs> I'm not going to finish that. But anyway, go bake a cake and carry it to a shut-in. Practice pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father. Visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. You'll, you'll eventually start to feel saved again. So there's two things you can do. Folks, this, 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 this account of Naaman is wonderful. You can know that you're saved. Nowhere in Scripture does God ever promise you'll always feel saved, but he does promise you can be assured of it. Mm, I don't think so, Michael. The reason I don't think so is in the context. So there's no such thing. Bear with me. There's no such thing as John 2 or 1 John 2. There's just 1 John, the entire letter. Uh, around 500 years or so, chapter and verse breaks were added. So what's going on in 1 John is these sins, the, 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 well, little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who's the propitiation for our sin but not for ours only. Uh, the way I look at that is if you walk in the light as he is in the light, you have fellowship one with another. You have to confess that you have sin and you have, and God is faithful to forgive you of that sin. And if you step outside of the light, so John is writing this so that you don't sin. In other words, you don't leave the light. But if you do, you may you may come out of a covenant relationship with God through or excuse me you may you may come out with come out of fellowship with God but you always have an advocate with the father so just come back into the fellowship is the idea i don't think and this is going to be a hot take 
I don't think sins committed in ignorance for a Christian does anything to separate from God. Now, I fully realize that, well, what about, what about a person who is living in adultery? Well, okay, so there's a point at which a person is ignorant of that sin where it's covered by the blood of Jesus, and there's a point where that person moves from the room of being ignorant to where they should have a responsibility for understanding. Who gets to decide where that point is? Folks, that's God. That's above my pay grade. John 1, 8 through 9 speaks of the time of conversion. Yeah, I'd I would I would I would read that I would read that text there and look at that context that um the um hereby do we know that we're there or excuse me. Uh yeah, I I just I don't think so. I I think uh the context talks about a continual action. And it's it's because of the verbiage is all in aorist tense, meaning it's it started at a time past and continues into the future. Uh it's in other words, it's not it it's it's either the, the verbs are either aorist or present active indicative. They're not they're not punctiliar. They're not they're not a one and done. In other words, I don't think it's talking about conversion in First John one eight through nine because of the continual action. Um, and uh, well, we look at Second Peter one nine, but Romans three twenty five. If if that's the verse I'm thinking about, let me get to it. Uh, that's a verse that we take out of context often to apply to an individual. And Romans chapter three does not apply to individuals, but groups. This is this is interesting here. Uh, let me get to Romans three. All right, so Romans three twenty five was cited, uh, whom God had set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. So what that is talking about there, that's not talking about an individual's past sin in other words that's not talking about so if if michael was converted and obeyed the gospel on december the 11th 2024 uh, excuse me 2023 that doesn't mean that michael's past sins before that date were forgiven what romans 3 is talking about is under the jewish dispensation of time nobody attained unto the glory of God under the, under the uh, patriarchal dispensation of time. No one attained unto the glory of God. It is only under the messianic dispensation of time where people are actually justified. They've been made just as if they had never sinned before the advent of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter two, Everyone who died in faith died guilty of sin and not justified. And then whenever Jesus died on the cross, that blood flowed backwards and forgave the sins of the world, every individual in the world who died in faith. Jesus' blood flows forward, and you and I can take advantage of it by obeying the gospel. The, the term is, um, 
if I'm remembering correctly, the counted righteous, logizomai. It's a legal term. I'll give you an illustration. We'll use Moses. Moses is in faith's hall of fame. We know for a fact he died in faith. So Moses dies, and he goes to Abraham's bosom. And Moses says, I died in faith, so I'm coming to paradise. And you've got to really use your imagination here. So the gatekeeper, we're in imagination land, remember, fantasy land. The gatekeeper says, well, you can't come in here because you have debt. You, you, you have accrued sin debt while on the earth, and you can't come to paradise. And then Moses says, well, you need to check that list again because I died in faith. So the gatekeeper checks his list again, and the gatekeeper says, oh, I see an asterisk. So I'm going to go down into my footnotes, and I'm going to look at my asterisk, and according to my footnotes, that the asterisk by your name means that someone is going to come along and completely pay your debt. So you can come into paradise as if you were justified. Folks, that's legitimate. So you can, you can be treated as if your debt was paid. Now, on the day of uh, on the on the on the the day Jesus was crucified, the day he sacrificed himself for the sins of the world, that asterisk by Moses' name would have been re- would have been removed because that's the day that Moses got his sin debt paid. That's the context of Romans three twenty five, where the blood flows backwards, the blood flows backwards and forwards. Now the beautiful thing. The reason Christians are more privileged than those who have lived in any other dispensation of time is because we are not counted righteous. We simply are. We obey the gospel and our sins are washed away. We're justified at that point. We are made, I like how Dan Winkler says, we are made just as if we had never sinned. We're not counted righteous. We are righteous. In other words, when I die, I'm going to go to the same imaginary gatekeeper and I'm going to say, Hey, it's time for me to go to paradise. And he's going to look and say, come right in, Mr. Brewer. You're, you're all of your debt. You don't have any debt. That's right. Cause I'm covered by the blood. So that's, that's, that's Romans three twenty five. Um, all right. Um, Yeah, so, yeah, 1 Peter 1, 9, but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and have forgotten that he was purged from his previous sin. Yeah, Peter Peter there, Peter is talking about uh, folks who uh, leave the faith. Here's the thing. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, you can turn around and leave the light. And according to Peter, that's like a dog going back to its own vomit or a sow going and washing in the mud that's being entangled again under the yoke of bondage, as Paul writes in Galatians chapter uh, chapter 5. Um, and then 2 Peter 2.20, um, what is that? I can't remember off the top of my head. Let me go to E-Sword. 
Yeah, yeah, well, I see it. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcoming the latter ends worse than the beginning. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, 1 Peter 1, 9, we'll, we'll go there and just look at that before we get off the podcast. Um, so go all the way back again to the beginning of the chapter. We got to get the context. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again to an amaranthian hope. The word amaranth is used here. This lively hope. Uh, well, actually, lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance incorruptible. Here in First Peter one four, uh, the word amaranth is used, I believe, um, and it's a and it's a juxtaposition of the yeah uh, of the glory of God. Um. Yeah, right here. I, I'll get it in a minute. Uh, this stuff off the top of my head, it's been a minute since I've used it. So to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away. That word fadeth not away or that phrase is translated by one Greek term, uh, the term from which we get our word amaranth, which an amaranth is a perennial flower, all right? In other words, it's a flower that blooms uh, yearly. It doesn't die, okay? So it's a perennial. And so anyway... This amaranthian hope, this this hope that doesn't die, it doesn't fade away, uh, it's reserved in heaven for you who are kept. Well, who, who is it? Well, those of you who are kept by the power of God through faith and the salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. Multifaceted would be a good word there. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found in the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love, in whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching of what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them. So this is talking about in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets were prophesying about Jesus, but they didn't know who they were talking about. Uh, what then is the sin unto death and the sin not unto death spoken of in 1 John 5, 16 through 17? The sin unto death is a sin of which one will not repent. The sin unto death is the sin of which one will not repent. That's about the simplest way to explain that. Um, a lot of people try to um, a lot of people try to mysticize it. I would say there's two different ways to look at that. There, there's two different sins. Let's let's go um, let's go to uh, let's go to First John five, and we'll look at that. Uh, passage of scripture uh numbers 15 28 through 31 uh that doesn't apply to the new testament uh 
uh, that wouldn't that wouldn't inform that wouldn't inform what we're talking about here. Uh, so, if any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life. For them that sin not unto death, there is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All righteousness is sin, and there is a sin. All unrighteousness, rather, is sin, and there is a sin that is not unto death. All right? So that is a difficult passage for many to wrap their minds around. There's two ways you can look at this that doesn't damage the text. One, a sin that is not unto death is a sin that is committed, but you repent of it. So that sin is not unto death. You, there is no reason to pray for somebody who is in open rebellion to God and refuses to repent. In other words, you don't go to God and pray on their behalf for forgiveness. The only prayer that you can pray on their behalf is that something will happen to them and they will repent of the condition in which they are in, okay? The second way to look at this, if a man see his brother in a sin which is not unto death, is one of those things that, well, if it's a sin, so he's doing something of which he's ignorant. In other words, he doesn't know that this is not right. He's innocent in his mind. Then you can pray to God on that behalf. But if he, how do I put this? Because I'm, I'm trying to explain this where it doesn't end up with a two hour long explanation or two hour long tail end of the podcast. I'm trying to think of a really good example. Give me just a second. This would be balanced against Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. If someone is doing something that is against the law of God, I do not, and they are innocent. They are, they are doing it in good conscience. They're just ignorant. They don't know. They are innocent of mind. I don't think you immediately have to go and, and do something about that. I think that you can allow the word of God to have time to do some work because you can trust in the fact that as long as they're walking in the light as he is in the light, they have fellowship one with another. That's that's what They have fellowship with God. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, is in a continual state of cleansing them. Now, somebody always asks, well, at what point does it go from that to they're spiritually dead and they're in open rebellion to God? It's a case-by-case basis. I think a lot of times we act like policemen in the Lord's church, and we don't, we don't, we, we ignore 1 John 5, 16 and 17, and we don't simply allow people the space to let the word of God work on them. 
Because the word of God is quick and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It will work on them. But we got to give people time. So in the meantime, we can pray on their behalf if they are mistaken about something. Um, but if they're, if they're committing a sin that is knocking them out of fellowship with God, that's a sin unto death. We've got to deal with that in the moment. So there, there's a lot of different passages of Scripture that would inform this and how we practice this and, and how we utilize this in, in practicality. But the main thing is we are, we're looking at a sin that is not unto death is either a sin that is not repented of or a sin that is it's an infraction of God's law that's done in innocency. How long do we forbear one another? How long will God forbear? Well, how long God forbears is up to God. We have to use discernment. So if a brother is overtaken in a fault, those who are qualified to do so, those who are spiritual, they need to go to that brother and restore such a one. And that would involve praying for them. That would involve counseling them and correcting them in a tender gentle way so that they don't fall into the category from sin not unto death into sin unto death. Uh, would not sin unto death mean that they repented of their sin before they died? Mary, I don't think so. I, I don't I don't I don't think it's that on the nose. Um because and and, it, and again it, it could be. I mean if if it is the case that there is a sin, in other words, well let's say that that my sin killed me. So let's say that I went out and I, I got a bunch of booze. I got I got a gallon of whiskey, and I I went out and I drunk that whiskey and I started driving up and down the road, and I plowed into a family of four, killed every one of them, and I died in the process. That's a sin unto death, like in the very literal terms. But I don't think that that's what I don't think that's what John's talking about. I'm open to correction. I mean, I could be wrong, but I think it makes more sense in the context that if you're going to pray for somebody, praying for somebody in open rebellion to God is worthless. The only thing that that's going to help them is being convicted by the word. Um, but if there's somebody who's not in open rebellion to God, in other words, the, the context of first John three informs how I interpret 1 John 5, 16, and 17. So whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is transgression of the law. Um, somebody who is in open rebellion to God, those people are out of fellowship with God. That's your sin unto death. But someone who is, they're just mistaken, and they're not defined. In other words, they're not sinning and keeping on sinning then it's probably best just to, just to pray for them and not make a deal out of it. Um, but anyway, but without, without getting the full-blown exegesis of 1 John, that's, that's, a, that's a good enough answer uh, for us today. Um, there is no other repentance than that which takes place when we descend into the water and receive remission of our former sins. Yeah, that's the shepherd of Hermas, and he is not authoritative and I do not agree with his statement right there. Uh, the, the statement of the shepherd of Hermas there is false. 
There is no other repentance than that which takes place when we descend into the water and receive remission of our former sins. Well, that's just absolutely wrong because what about first uh, or what about Second Corinthians chapter seven? Uh, godly sorrow leads to repentance, not to be repented of. Paul wrote uh, to the church in Corinth about uh, a man that had his brother's wife. And then that person evidently repented, but he was a Christian, so he repented. So there is another repentance besides the one where we descend into the into the water. So yeah, I don't I don't believe the lesson of I don't believe the shepherd of Hermas there at all. Um, isn't it idolatry to do your own will and to reject God's will? Yeah, it's the worst form of idolatry. It's it's self idolatry. Uh, if we have been converted and then again choose to defy God to willingly do what we know is wrong in rejection of the Holy Spirit, how can we then say that we love God with all that we are? I mean, people are, are multifaceted people. Um, but I think you're confusing. Let, let, me give you, let me give you an example of, uh, or an illustration that might help us here. There's a doctrine that's taught, and I, I've I've covered this extensively throughout the years because it's it's such a misunderstanding amongst people. There's a doctrine that is taught that when I wake up in the morning, so before I went to bed last night, I prayed, Dear God, forgive me of my sins that I've committed throughout the day. All right. So I, I don't sin when I'm asleep. So when I wake up, I have a clean slate and I'm saved. And then on the way to work, I get mad and I throw up a middle finger. And I'm like, well, I shouldn't have done that. Dear Lord, I'm so sorry. So I, when I got mad and threw up a middle finger, I went from saved to lost. But then when I said, dear Lord, please forgive me of that. I'm so sorry. I went from lost to saved. And this doctrine teaches that throughout the course of the day, you may jump from lost to saved, saved to lost, several different times. And then what happens is you come home and on the way home, you pray, dear Lord, please. I know I had a rough day. Forgive me of all my sins. I'm just an old wretch. Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. And so your sins are forgiven. Then when you come in the house, well, we're commanded to dwell with our wives in knowledge. So when you come in our, when you come in the house, your wife lights into you and you snap at her and you mistreat her because you haven't dwelt with her in knowledge. That's a sin. So before you can pray, dear God, forgive me of that sin, you have a heart attack and die. That is not a sin unto death. But the way this doctrine is taught is because you didn't explicitly pray for that one sin of dwelling with your wife in knowledge that you're now going to spend an eternity in hell. That is absolutely not what the Bible teaches. People have infractions of the law that do not define their character. That does not knock them out of fellowship. As long as you are trying, as long as you're walking towards the mark, as long as you're pressing towards the mark, the blood of Jesus Christ began cleansing you at the point of your conversion and continues to cleanse you. That's 1 John 1, 7. Here's the illustration. 
I'm in a shower and I'm lathering up and I turn around two or three times to get something, I get dizzy and I steady myself against what I think is the shower wall, but it's the shower curtain and I fall down. And in doing so, I break the shower curtain. I hurt my knee. I hurt my pride. I scare my family because it's loud. But you know what doesn't happen? I don't get dirty. Why? Because I never stepped out of the flow of the clean water. When you're walking in the light, as he is in the light, you're walking in the flow of blood. You never get dirty because you never come out of the blood. That is why Romans chapter 8 verse 1 is so profound. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. 1 John chapter 5 is talking about a sin that is not unto death, a sin that you commit but doesn't kill you spiritually because it is not a sin that you turned your back on Jesus and God to commit. It's a, it's a slip, trip, and a fall. We pray for people like that. When people are struggling, you don't muck about with people who are on the upward way, who are struggling to do right, who are working to do right. You pray for them, and you let the Word of God work on them, and you edify them and encourage them. But for a person who has turned their back on God and left the light, that is a sin unto death. You don't pray for them. You don't, and when I say you don't pray for them, the context, it's not that you don't pray for them. You don't, you don't pray for them for their forgiveness because they cannot have forgiveness. They're no longer covered by the blood. They have left the flow of blood because they are now in open rebellion to God. The only prayer that you can pray on their behalf is that something pricks their heart and they come back to the fold. But if there's somebody, if there's a brand new baby Christian and they're struggling with a particular sin, you pray for them. Because I'm going to tell you the long-suffering and forbearance of God is great, and it's greater than humanity. There's going to be people in heaven that we think ought not be there that are there because of this. Now, I will tell you this, this whole doctrine of going back and forth from saved to lost and lost to saved, that's not a God I want to serve. That's not the way God works. Um, Paul commanded that, that he be thrown out of the church. Uh, on, on the 1 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul did command that he be thrown out of the church because he had sinned unto death. He was in open rebellion to God. Therefore, he had to be removed from the church. But evidently, according to 2 Corinthians, he repented and the people of the church were still being too hard on him. So that, in relation to your Shepherd of Hermas quote, that flies in the face of Shepherd of Hermas. Um The choice to defy God to commit the, that desired sin is their decision to leave the... No, it's not. You're being way too judgmental and harsh on people. That is not what the New Testament teaches. So are you saying that if somebody slips, trips, and falls and they don't ever get out of the light, if somebody just 
In other words, is it? Do you think it's a gamble between whether or not you prayed last or whether or not you sinned last? There's no assurance of salvation there. We're not talking about willful rebellion against God. We're talking about a mistake. All right. A slip trip is not done willingly. It's also not done in ignorance. But a slip trip is done willingly. I mean, remember, it's an illustration. It's not perfect. So, for instance, going down the road, if um, if I'm going down the road and I see a semi come across into my lane, and I yell at the top of my lungs and I say an expletive. Does that mean that I'm going to hell because I die before I can say, dear Lord, forgive me of that sin. I think we don't truly understand what the scriptures teach when it comes to just how strong the blood of God or the blood of Jesus is and the grace of God, and the mercy of God. That's why the book of first John was written. Look at listen to the thesis of the book of 1 John. It's verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. According to this doctrine, this doctrine that, that you believe there, there's no assurance of salvation. Mistakes are forgivable. Defiance is not. Well, defiance is absolutely forgivable. All sin is forgivable. There is no such thing as an unforgivable sin except for a sin of which we will not repent. I think Paul said it perfectly when he said willingly sin, Hebrews 10, 26. Well, first off, Paul didn't say that. That's a Hebrews writer. That could not have been written by Paul because Paul would have uh, would have been unable to write that around the mid-60s and the uh, well, early 60s. But anyway, the point, the point I'm making, Hebrews 10, 26 is not talking about individual sins. We've got to put these things in their context. Context, context, context. The sin, the willing sin that the Hebrews writer is talking about is going back under the old covenant. So that's, you can't take Hebrews 10, 26 and say, well, you know, you you looked at a woman for the purpose of lust, so that kicked you out of the fellowship of God. Well, I, I willingly looked at her. Well, yeah. So if you sin willingly, there there remains no sacrifice for sin. Well, that's hopeless. If, if Hebrews ten twenty six applies generally then once you willingly sin, there's no more sacrifice for sin and you're just damned and there's not a thing you can do about it. We got to put verses in their context. We've got to. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's first John chapter three is the, is the passage of scripture here. Um, you just look at the verbiage. We'll skip to verse four. Whosoever, and I'm going to read it the way the verb tense would be if it weren't, well, it's it's either aorist or present active indicative, 
okay? Whosoever commits and keeps on committing sin transgresses and keeps on transgressing the law, for sin is transgression of the law. It's, it's the practice. It's the habit. It's the difference between sin coming for a visit and letting sin have a room in your house, okay? We're all going to make mistakes. Again, we are culpable in our mistakes. I know you say mistakes are not done willingly. Mistakes are done willingly. Like you willingly did something. If I, you know, if I'm if on the if on the way to work, somebody almost cuts me off or cuts me off and and almost causes me to wreck, I might yell something mean at them. Well, that's that's losing my temper. That's that's we shouldn't do that. That's a that would be a transgression of at least principle of scripture. But I willingly did it. Like I'm responsible for that action. Even though it's it, even though it's a sin, it doesn't define my character. So therefore, I've never come out of the light. I've never left the flow of blood. All right? So, here's the thing. Verse 5, and ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abides and keeps on abiding in him sins and keeps on sinning not. Whosoever sins and keeps on sinning hath not seen him, neither hath known him. Would an example be of someone who maybe cheated taxes for years becomes a Christian but continues to cheat taxes year after year? It's not every it's not an everyday sin but they refuse to repent year after year. So, Philip Carmen, that that's a good example. If if I if my if if my conscience is such that I can write down a wrong number on my tax return, when I become a Christian, I may not even be cognizant of that. It may not dawn on me that what I'm actually doing is I'm cheating and I'm lying and I'm not rendering to Caesar what is Caesar. So there's three transgressions in that one thing. Now, what if my conscience is pure and I'm living a life commensurate with God's precepts, commandments, and divine examples, but this one area, I'm blind. It just, it just hasn't ever come up. I'm just ignorant of it. I'm just blind. I'm willfully doing this. All right? I'm willfully doing this. At what point is God going to look down from heaven and say, you've had enough time. Ignorance is no excuse for the law. There's not a man or woman on earth that can answer that question. So what do we do? We have to go by God's second law of pardon. We have to go by Romans chapter 8, verse 1. So this is something that I'm willingly doing, but I have no issue of conscience. Now, what if once I'm made aware that this is actually a a transgression of God, what if... I say, well, you know what? I'm I'm still going to continue to do this, and I don't care. Well, it is at that point we have stepped outside of the light. 
Now, that's an example of a sin committed in ignorance. But it doesn't have to be a sin committed in ignorance. It could be a momentary lapse of judgment. For instance, the looking at a woman for the purpose of lusting. As a man, I will tell you that there has been a time where I have snuck a look. Probably shouldn't have. Well, that's stupid. I know I shouldn't have. Does that, it, it, that time where I snuck a look, did that kick me out of fellowship with God? Well, no, because in the moment I realized this is not something a Christian does. Well, the blood of Christ, I never come out of fellowship with God. The blood of Christ continually cleanses. That's what 1 John 7 teaches. What's up, sword and pearl? Um, 1 John 3, 8, commit equals G4160. Uh, to commit present participle active. Yeah, it's active. It means it happened in the past and it has continual action into the future. So that's 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. He that commits and keeps on committing sin is of the devil. For the devil sinned and keeps on sinning from the beginning. For this purpose was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. In fact, you can um, you can look there and uh, the Greek word, let me, let me get down past... Like this, this word is huge. It's, um, well, actually, what are you looking at? That's G4160 commit, uh, in first John three, eight commit is 4160. Oh yeah. 4160. Duh. I just looked at the wrong word. Sorry. Um, so it's a verb. Now let's look at the part of speech of this verb. So I'm going to go to uh, the Greek New Testament um, in interlinear, and this verb G4160 is present active, present active participle nominative singular masculine. So present active, in other words, it's presently acting. There's a good way to remember that. Um, this is a really hard topic, and you're really breaking it down and making it clear. Thank you. Philip says, Carmen, I really appreciate that. Just remember, the, the thing about it is, once God has you, what it cost to acquire your soul was the precious blood of his son. Do we think that God is going to easily relinquish us do we think God is going to make it easy for us to be damned once we are saved? Well, it depends on what you, it really and truly the, the answer to that question personally for, for each individual probably has a lot to do with the relationship they have with their own father. Probably has to do with the relationship they have with their own father. Um, but yeah, I, I love I love looking at the the grammar and stuff of these words. Present active indicative, and then um, let me get back to the to the scripture there. Um, but for instance, let's we'll go back to uh, we'll go back to First John chapter one verse seven. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, 
Uh, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His son cleanseth. That's uh, cathar- catharsio, um, cathartic, it's heals. And let's look at the the Greek New Testament there. Um, bear with me. All right. Uh, in case that... Right here. Again, that is a present, active, indicative verb. All right? So that implies that the action started at a time in the past, and the tense of this verb is that it's active. It, it indicates action that is continuing into the future from an undisclosed time in the past. That's how that grammar works. So I tell you what one person illustrated it as uh as you as you drive your vehicle down the road bugs hit your windshield rain hits your windshield dirt hits your windshield if you never cleaned your windshield eventually it would be so dirty you couldn't see so what happens well think about what happens in a rainstorm you're driving down the road and the windshields wipe and to no avail, the rain keeps coming down, but the windshield, windshield, the wind, windshield wipers keep wiping. Well, as you walk in the light, the blood of Jesus is wiping you clean. There is therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. I would, I would suggest that everybody goes to, um, the goes to YouTube and searches Dan Winkler, 1 John, and listen to Dan Winkler's exegesis of 1 John. He did a seminar years ago um, about this. Um, Michael says, no, it means that we do not choose to commit a sin from conversion moving forward throughout life. That that's absolutely false. That's not what that means at all. Do you think our free will is taken away? Do you think that you think the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life are just totally squelched and we have no more will or desire to to fulfill the lust of the flesh? That's not what that, that's not what that verse means at all. All right, I've gone about long enough. Um, listen, he, he, here's what I want you to come away with. First off, back to the Naaman lesson. You can function with doubts. Now, as to what we've been talking about lately, um, we need to learn how to put stuff in context. It It greatly bothers me that there are people out here that set themselves forward to be teachers who don't know what they say nor whereof they affirm. First Timothy chapter one, verse seven. And I know this because whenever they say stuff, they're not dealing with the context whatsoever. They're, they're and, and it's not just that they're not dealing with the context of the verse in the, in the, um, it's not just, they're not dealing with the context of the verse in the, in the, in the chapter of the book, 
they're not dealing with the context of the verse and the overall uh, canon of Scripture. Uh, Michael says, I have spoken the truth, doubts, or warnings. Um, yeah, you, you, you haven't, you, you've got some issues with, with hermeneutics. Um, my suggestion is just, just keep showing up, keep learning, be teachable, and, and you'll, you'll get there. Uh, Diana Hard says, I've all, always leave your podcast having learned something and, or having been encouraged. Thank you, Tony. Tony, you're a brilliant man. Not just on the Bible, but academically, you use your abilities for Christ and do an excellent job in explaining Scripture, uh, et cetera, and teaching the gospel. I really appreciate that. Um, here's the thing. Here's what I want to leave you with. I want to leave you of the leave you with the assurance that as long as you're walking in the light, as He is in the light, you cannot be lost. If you're walking in the light as he is in the light, there is no power in heaven nor earth that can remove you from the light, the fellowship of God. Even if you have momentary lapses of judgment, a momentary lapse of judgment is not a full-blown rebellion against God. That's what the book of 1 John is teaching. The book of 1 John was written to combat fallacious thinking like what the shepherd of Hermas put out. Like the shepherd of Hermas didn't read 1 John. There is no repentance other than the repentance we do whenever we go down into the water and we have our past sins forgiven. Well, that's no hope. The book of 1 John was written so that people who believed on the name of the Son of God could know for certain that they have salvation. How do you have assurance of salvation if every little bitty infraction, every little bitty momentary lapse of judgment as a human being kicks you out of fellowship with God? It's not what the Bible teaches at all. And if that's God, then he's an evil God, and I don't want any part of him. And that's about all I've got to say about that. Um, just remember, context is king. And tomorrow, uh, we're going to go live an hour earlier. Todd Clippard will be on with me and Aaron Dotson, and we're going to talk about the qualifications for elderships, and we are going to turn some folk upside down. We may even have fellowship withdrawn from us from folks or by folks. Um, so we're going to talk about some of these things, and I can't wait. Listen, this has been Tony Brew with Cogitations. A rather lengthy episode, but that's okay. Be sure and subscribe to Cogitations on Pod on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio. Remember, you can support the show by becoming a five dollar a month subscriber on Substack. You can send money to www.nearchurches at gmail.com. Uh, and you can also do Patreon and buy me a coffee. We're so grateful, and that's all we've got, folks. This has been Tony Birth Cogitations, and we'll catch you. On the flip side.